there are good things that happen in our world, but along with the good things that happen in our troubled world, um, there are a lot of bad things that happen as well. And when we get into the scriptures of the Old Testament, we learn that the scriptures tell us why. Sometime after creation, God had placed Adam and Eve in a garden. They were in a pristine environment, a perfect environment, an environment that was free from sin and death, an environment where Adam and his wife Eve lived in harmony with one another, and they lived in harmony with God, and they were in harmony with nature, and everything was harmonious, and then something tragic took place. We know the story if we've been a Christian for a while. We know that Adam and Eve disobeyed a simple command of God, and the result of that was sin and death entered the world, and the fact that sin and death had entered the world shows up immediately on the pages of Scripture because Adam and Eve had two sons, a son named Cain and a son named Abel. And the first thing that happened after they fell into sin was what? One son, Cain, is jealous of the other son, Abel, and what does he do? He kills him. So sin's on the scene. That's going to characterize the world moving forward. Evil is going to take over. Death is going to be the result of the fall. And God had promised that. But what's interesting is that even though sin, death, darkness entered the world as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, God promised to send someone who would be born of a woman to reverse the curse of sin and death. So the first prophecy that was given about a coming redeemer was given to Adam and Eve right after they sinned. It was a way of God saying, okay, listen, you blew it. You blew it big time. In fact, you blew it so bad that sin and death is going to pass to all of your descendants down through history. But I'm not going to leave you and your descendants trapped in sin and death. I'm going to send a rescuer. And the first prophecy of that is found in Scripture in Genesis 3.15. That was written about 4004 B.C. And what that Scripture says, God speaking to the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve, is, quote, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he will crush your head even though you will bruise his heel. That was a prophecy about a person that would be a male, that would be born of a woman, given right after Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden. Now, I'm going to clue you into something. If you read through the Old Testament, there are actually a hundred such prophecies about Jesus that he fulfilled, I only have time to give you five, unless you want to stay until tomorrow. But that's the first one, Genesis 3.15. Now listen, if you fast forward in Genesis, you'll find that there was another prophecy given, and that other prophecy appears in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 through 10. If you've got Bibles, I want you to look at it because I believe it's important for us as Christians to be able to trace the prophetic promises 
through the Old Testament down to the New Testament era. So if you look at Genesis chapter 49, a number of years have passed since the fall, and Genesis chapter 49 is dated to about 1689 B.C., and the scene there is that Jacob is about to die, and so he's going to bless his 12 sons. He's going to bless his 12 sons. And so when you get to Genesis 49, verse 8, Jacob is going to pronounce a blessing on one of his sons named Judah. This is what Jacob pronounced over Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. And then verse 10, listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Who is Shiloh? We know him from later prophecy as the Prince of Peace. This was a prophecy that was saying that Judah would be the royal line. The scepter of rulership would not depart from him. The ruler's staff wouldn't depart from between his feet until the male child prophesied in Genesis 3.15 came into the world. Why would it stop there? Because the male child that would come into the world through the line of Judah is known as the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the final ultimate king from God. So that was 1689 BC. And we learned that this promised one's gonna come through the tribe of Judah. Now I'm gonna have you fast forward even further. Go up to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's an earthly king. He was one of the three great kings of Israel. So the first great king of Israel was Saul. He was half-hearted, failed before the Lord. The next king was David, and the king David was said to be a man after God's own heart. And when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have the record of David making plans to build a temple for God the Lord. And if you read that chapter, you'll see what God the Lord says to him. And we don't want to go into all the detail right now. But if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, you'll read these words. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's Solomon. And then it says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And there was a little addition to the promise in regards to David's descendants. And so we know that this coming one was going to be of the line of David. And we also understand that in some way, God would establish the throne of this person's kingdom forever. This is speaking of someone other than Solomon. We learn that as we move through the Old Testament. 
Now, that prophecy was given in 1012 B.C. Now, if you move forward from there to the prophet Isaiah, there's some interesting prophecies in the prophet Isaiah. Find the book of Isaiah and find chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, 13 and 14... We learn that there's going to be a child that's going to be born of a virgin. The 13th verse says this. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? And then you've got these words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, what? Emmanuel, what does that mean? Emmanuel, God with us. Now, let me tell you when this prophecy was written. It was written in 742 B.C. So 742 years before the fact, Isaiah gave this prophecy. And the prophecy states that this coming one that was mentioned all the way back in the Garden of Eden was going to be someone born of a virgin. Now, let me show you another one. Turn over a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, you've got a prophecy in the 6th through the 7th verse. And I remember when I was a kid, by a kid I mean I was 10th or 11th grade, um, I came to know the Lord around the 10th grade. And my family went to a church back in Tennessee. It was a Cumberland Presbyterian church. And every year we had a Christmas cantata. That was a Christmas concert. And I remember one year, um, we sung a cantata that was titled, Behold a King. And I remember from that cantata, these verses, and there was a place where we were singing this prophecy, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. And it would come upon the throne of David to order it and to establish it from that day forth and even forevermore. And it went on to say, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Now look at Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read it to you again. Now I'm reading New American Standard, and I think I just quoted New King James, but that's okay. But here's a prophecy. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal or Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You remember what I read in Genesis 49? A lawgiver won't depart from your house until Shiloh comes. Prince of Peace, until Shiloh comes. There will be no end to the increase of his government or, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That was penned and spoken in 740 B.C. by the prophet Isaiah. Now, there's some interesting aspects of this. 
uh, this child was going to have a great name. He was going to be the son of the Most High. He was going to be given David's throne. He was going to reign forever. What's all the significance of this? Go back to Luke chapter 1. If you read through verse 31 to 33, you see that the statements made by the angel basically communicated that the child that Mary was going to bear in her womb was the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Notice what he says again. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb. She's a virgin. You're going to conceive in your womb, and you're going to bear a son. That goes back to Isaiah 7, 14. And you shall name him Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves, which is parallel to Emmanuel. Jehovah saves. He will be great. Will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Now if you were a 16 year old Jewish virgin who was steeped in the scriptures and who knew the prophecies, you would have understood exactly what this angel was saying about what was about to happen to you. She would have thought, he's saying that I am the virgin spoken of in Isaiah 7, 14. He's saying that I'm going to bear the son spoken of in Isaiah 7, 14. This angel is saying that the son I'm going to bear is the same son that Isaiah spoke of in the ninth chapter of his prophecy. The son I'm going to bear is the son upon whom the government will be. It's he who is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's how she would have understood what was spoken by that angel on that day 2,000 plus years ago. That's pretty phenomenal. That's why I say that this reveals prophecy fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled. This is all contained in the angelic announcement to Mary. So the announcement itself highlighted to her prophecy fulfilled. Now, how did she respond? Well, she asked a logical question How can this be, seeing that I am a virgin? How's it going to happen? Any virgin would have asked that. How's it going to take place? I know what the prophecy said, but how is it going to come to pass? What's going to happen? And then the angel answers her question. Look at verse 35 and following. The angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And then the angel gives her proof. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. That was the answer that he gave her. And what did she do after that? She had a choice of believing it or not. And she believed it. And so we have promises believed. 
We have promises believed. She accepted the testimony of the angel and believed it. Verse 38, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, we can read those verses or that verse right there and kind of shoot right over them, not thinking too deeply about what that would mean for her. But it's not wise for us to do that. We want to get our heads around uh, this, 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 this implication for this young Israelite virgin. And so she has faith. And this faith of Mary, the young virgin, who the angel spoke to, was really clear. But you need to understand it came to her with great cost. It came to her with a great cost. So what was the cost? Uh, well, you know what? There's always a cost to a mom and a dad when a baby comes into the world, right? And we rejoice about it, and it's always wonderful. I remember before Raquel and I had our first uh, son, Joshua, um, you know, it was just she and I, and we'd been married, and we were newlyweds, and we were happy and rejoicing and all of that kind of stuff. We could sing that song, Happy Together, and we were happy together, and we had time to pray and hang out, and there was nothing interrupting our sleep at night, and everything was really, really cool and good. And then Joshua was born. Now, what happened after Joshua was born? Well, we were filled with joy because Joshua was born. And we were also filled with sleeplessness because he didn't sleep very well for a while. And we were filled with all of the cares that any new set of parents have, right? But that's normal. Every couple that has a child, every mother that gives birth... Um, pays the price of being a mom or pays the price of being a dad. And we find that children don't come with owner's manuals, and so we have to learn as we go. And we've got these kids basically for life until we leave this life or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And even after our kids are grown and gone, we still are connected to them. And that's a good thing. Mary paid that kind of price like every mother does but there were a set of costs that she faced that other mothers didn't have to face what were those costs first of all there was going to be a cost to her regarding Joseph's doubt regarding Joseph's doubt if you look over at Matthew you'll find that Matthew records the fact that Joseph had some doubts. In verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with the child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. What in the world was that about? Well, her engagement to Joseph could also be described as her betrothal to Joseph. And the betrothal of a Jewish maiden to a Jewish man was far more significant than the engagement of an American woman to an American man. Let me tell you how it was more significant. In our culture, a guy asks a gal to marry him, and she says yes, hopefully, if he's read her right, <laughs> And she says yes, and they get engaged, and they start planning a wedding. Now, here's the interesting thing about engagement in our culture. 
There's nothing legal and binding about an engagement between a guy and a gal in the culture of America. What that means is that the girl or the guy can break that engagement at any time if they want to, and there are no legal ramifications if they do. Not so in first century Jewish culture. So when a maiden, a virgin, was betrothed to a potential husband, in Jewish culture, that was the equivalent of our wedding ceremony. Where there's a ceremony and there are vows that are taken and the marriage license is signed, and now that guy and that gal are legally joined together, right? That's what betrothal is and was in Jewish culture. So her engagement to Joseph was regarded as a pledge, listen to this, of mutual fidelity, and its violation was viewed as adultery if the violation was sexual in nature. That's what's behind Matthew 1, 18 and 19. It says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. Why did he want to send her away? Because according to the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy, chapter 22, 13, through verse 23, 24, the penalty of the Old Testament law, if she was shown to have been unfaithful, was death by stoning. You see her dilemma? She paid a price to bear the Christ child. I can't even imagine what she was thinking in her head about what she might say to Joseph. But guys, ask yourself this question. If you had been Joseph and your betrothed came up and said, listen, I'm pregnant. And by the way, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What would you have thought? You probably would have thought, she's crazy. And I'm getting out of this situation. That's what's behind verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1. So that was the cost of her telling Joseph and Joseph's doubt. And fortunately, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what does Joseph do at that point? Joseph enters into the cost of Mary bearing the Christ child and purposes to bear the stigma that he knows she's going to have along with her. That's what he decided to do. And if you read the story in chapter 2 of Luke, Joseph is going down from Galilee and Nazareth in order to be registered with Mary who was engaged to him pre-marriage and was with child. And I guarantee you everybody in Nazareth knew that that Mary was pregnant, and it wasn't by Joseph. The cost. Then there was a cost to her regarding the stigma of her pregnancy. And then there would be a cost to her son Jesus after he was born because he would be viewed as being illegitimate. And if you want to see an illustration of that, 
Uh, take the time later to read John 8, 41, because in John chapter 8, Jesus, the man now, is debating with the Jews, and he's talking about how God is his father, and they are of their father, the devil, and one of the things that the Jewish people say, the Jewish men that are debating him, they say, we're descendants of Abraham. He's our father. We are not children of fornication. Why did they say that? That was a personal shot because that was a reputation that had spread among those who knew the story. And so the promises were believed by Mary and she believed those promises at great cost to herself. And Joseph supported her at great cost to himself. And Jesus came into the world with a stigma. So we've got prophecies fulfilled and promises believed. What was the result of those things? Well, Mary said to the angels, so let it be done to me according to your word. And this reception of Mary resulted in a child received. That's the Christ child. Who would be announced by the angels to a group of shepherds as the children sung about a little bit this morning. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the story. The story in Luke 1, 26 to 38 highlights in relation to Christ's coming, prophecy fulfilled, promises believed, a child received. And it states that after thousands of years, the God of heaven was about to establish a beachhead that would ultimately defeat sin, defeat Satan, defeat death, and ultimately would return his world to the pristine state that it originally was in, only it would be better. And that's the world that is to come. Now, what do we do with this practically? How does this fit with us? We live in the 21st century. Is there a so what to this? Well, actually, there really is. Uh, Whether you realize it or not, this same process These same factors come into play for anyone who is a Christian and who would be a Christian. Let me explain to you what I mean. Uh, Even today, there are prophecies fulfilled. You see, brothers and sisters, we haven't followed some crafting mythology that somebody made up. In the same way that Jesus coming into the world fulfilled some 100 prophecies from the Old Testament... God's prophecies have been being fulfilled since he came, and they continue to be fulfilled. Everything about Jesus was a fulfillment of the prophecies of God. And then after Jesus came, he gave prophecies as well. And many of those prophecies were fulfilled, and some of them have been fulfilled even in some of our lifetimes. And so these same factors come into play for anyone who would be a Christian today. Their prophecies fulfilled. So what would be some prophecies that have been fulfilled in our lifetime? You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was here, he predicted the total destruction of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And the Jewish people were dispersed. 
And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that the reason for that was that the Jewish people were scattered so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. But there's a place in Luke and also in Romans 9, 10, and 11 where we're told that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled, right? And guess what happened? Israel went out of existence in 70 AD, but there are Old Testament prophecies saying that it would be resurrected as a nation. And in 1948, it was resurrected as a nation. And anybody that was alive back then saw that happen. But if you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know that there were prophecies being fulfilled right before your eyes. And in 1967, the Jews recaptured Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been under control of the Israelis since 1967. What is that but prophecy fulfilled? I could go on and name a bunch more. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against us. Here we are, 2023. What are we? We're a church. Do you realize we're not here by accident? Do you realize that when a congregation goes through all the troubles that a congregation can have and yet it doesn't go out of existence, there's a reason for that? That Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. And he's the head of the church and he's an active head and he keeps his church alive and he keeps his church vital. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. And the gospel would be preached first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And most of us are Gentiles. And how in the world did the gospel reach us? Prophecy fulfilled. And so it'll go on. We are Christians today because prophecy has been fulfilled. You know what? Even today, there are promises from God to his people. And when we become Christians, then we begin to believe these promises. And so we've got prophecy fulfilled. And as Christians, we also have promises believed. I can give you a few Time won't allow me to develop all of these verses I wrote down. There's always more material than we can cover. John 3, 16 and 17 says this. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what verse 17 says? Most of us learn 16. That's the most popular verse in the world. That's the verse that the dude in the end zone of the 49ers used to hold up. John 3, 16, right? Everybody knows what that is. Do you know what John 3.17 says? It's the best part of all. Let me give you the verses together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's a promise. And everybody that's a Christian has that as a promise believed. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20 says that all the promises of God to us are yes and amen in Christ. Isn't that great? So you read through the New Testament and you see what all the promises of God are. Read through the Old Testament too and get those. All of the promises of God are yes and amen through Jesus Christ. That's why C.H. Spurgeon used to say that the scriptures are simply the checkbook of heaven and Christians can cash in on the promises of God at the bank of heaven because his promises never fail and they never will. 
Prophecies fulfilled, promises believed. First Peter chapter 1 says, we have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and reserved in heaven for us. And it's kept there for us by the power of God. We're kept by the power of God. And if we're Christians, then we can also boast that there's a child received. Because we received the child, Christ, by faith. Not a child anymore, but the man who grew up, died on a cross, rose again from the dead, and now is at the right hand of God. And we put our faith in him. What if you're not a Christian, though? Well, if you're not a Christian here this morning, listen. Whether you're young or whether you're old, the faith of the Christians is not based on a set of myths. The faith of we as Christians is based on the sure work of God from creation through fall to the coming of the Redeemer to the spread of the gospel and it won't be completed until Jesus comes back. It's real. And the prophecies are fulfilled. Your question, if you're not a Christian, is will you believe the promises and will you receive the child now at the right hand of God? Answer that question for yourself. Let's pray. We ask you, Heavenly Father, to take what's been spoken and seal it to our hearts. Um, And I pray that all of my friends here would take the time to go back and think through all of the stuff we talked about today as they celebrate Christmas. Today's the 17th. We are about eight days away from the Christmas celebration nine days, and we just ask that you would help us get our heads around these great truths. We also pray if we're Christians that you would give us opportunity to share these truths to other people. There are people all around us who are without hope and without you in the world. And one of the songs we sang, we sang about that. We come in contact with them every day. I came in contact with a family yesterday that is so hopeless because they don't have faith in Christ and a great tragedy struck their home and left the wife absolutely dumbfounded as to what to do. But we know that ultimately the answer is in your son Jesus Christ, born to the Virgin Mary, announced by the angel, born to Mary, crucified, dead, risen, and reigning. Help us give an answer to the hope that's in us. And then, Father, if there are those with us today that don't know you, we pray that you would use something that's been spoken and sung to draw them. May this be the day when they realize that we have a faith that we hold to because prophecies have been and are fulfilled. And we have great and precious promises from God that we believed. And there was a child born that we have received and draw them to faith in Christ. We commit our day to you now. Thank you that we can celebrate. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I believe I can say you're dismissed, right? <laughs> but let me just say this before you go. If you happen to be here and you are not a Christian, whether you're a little tyke or an old person, 
Talk to somebody that you know is a Christian. Talk to somebody who you know knows that they are a Christian. Somebody that you know knows that they have security in Christ. Do it now. Do it today. And the hope is that everybody will come to know Christ as their Lord, as their Savior. You're dismissed. Have a great Christmas.